Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Welcome to the EduTrends podcast, conversations with experts from around the globe about the discovery and creation of the future of higher education and lifelong learning. I am Jose Pepez Camilla, director of Tech Labs, an educational innovation unit of Tecnológico de Monterrey. Over the past three decades, I have been working on innovative pedagogies and learning technologies. I hope this EduTrends podcast will help us understand the future of learning. I met with Randy Bass at Georgetown University. He is Vice Provost for Education and Professor of English at Georgetown, where he founded the Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship, commonly known as the Red House. We had a meaningful conversation about how Georgetown University reinvents itself. Why do we need a new focus on education? and what humans can do to get better at being human. So I am in Washington, D.C., in Georgetown University, uh, visiting the little red house across the library. Randy, tell us what's going on here. So we're in a, a, a place that's known as the red house, and it is across the street from the university, but it has a symbolic separation from the university in that... Uh, This is the place where we are trying to imagine and help the university imagine what the next version of itself would look like. So what we do here is uh, uh, we started five years ago with something, with an initiative known as Designing the Futures of the University. The idea was rather than sit around and talk about what the future might look like and then you know, create some kind of blue sky plan, that the best way to explore what the next version of Georgetown would be is through experimentation and piloting and action. So what we do through the Red House is support faculty um, and other campus players to create new kinds of learning experiences that we believe uh, will help chart what the next version of Georgetown might look like. Okay, and, and what it will look like? Well, I think we know that it will be uh, not organized by disciplines, but very you know, relentlessly interdisciplinary. Uh, we know that the, um, we need to start developing uh, students in their skills to be effective in the world much earlier so that the movement back and forth between theory and practice, between academic learning and applied learning, that that combination has to happen almost as soon as they get here. Um, I think we know that uh, the future of work will be significantly changed by artificial intelligence and automation. And many jobs that are currently being done by humans will either be changed or eliminated. And so what we really have to do is focus on what is it about a university education that puts students in the position uh, to, to be as qualified as possible to do the work that humans can do best. So we know that, that what humans can do that computers can't 
are things that are unstructured, unpredictable, complex, improvisational, creative, um, and interactive. And so if that's the world of human work, that's the world of work that'll be left to humans that computers won't be doing in the next 10, 20, 30 years, then we need to really tune the entire curriculum, as I often put it, to helping humans get better at being human. Right? We know that machines will get better at being machines. They're not necessarily machines. They're not going to get better at being human. They're going to get better at being machines. The question is, are we helping humans get better at being human? And I think that's really the project of the university. So one of the things in the future is changing from one job to another faster and dealing with a lot of uncertainty. Can this be taught? So I don't think it can be taught in the traditional sense of direct instruction. I would consider the comfort in working with uncertainty as what I often refer to as a disposition, and we, or many people refer to as a disposition. And we know that you cannot engage in direct instruction in a disposition. I can't lecture you on how to be humble. I can't lecture you on how to be resilient. Uh, I can't lecture you on how to be creative. Uh, but I can create or design a learning experience and guide you through that learning experience in which those traits are more likely to be cultivated. So I think that what is incumbent on us is to create new learning environments in which those kinds of traits, the ability to work with uncertainty, is more rather than less likely to be cultivated. Can you tell me some of examples of uh, the things that you're doing with uh, faculty members of the university? So I'll give you two examples that I think really exemplify this. Um, one is uh, where we've tried to reimagine how students can encounter part of what we call the core curriculum requirements. So these are the requirements that, are, um, that every student has to take. Uh, we're Catholic institutions, so that includes theology, philosophy, ethics, but also history, humanities, science, etc. We have created and been experimenting for several years with how we can arrange part of that core curriculum around big global challenges. So for three years, we've been focused on climate change. Uh, this year, we added a second uh, theme of human humanity and technology. And what students do is that they take every seven weeks, they take a different seven week, one and a half credit module that is a perspective on the theme. So they take ethical approaches to climate change, biological approaches to climate change, environmental history with a focus on climate change. They can't take the same discipline two modules in a row. So they have to shift every seven weeks their disciplinary During four years. Across uh, one to, this is just the core curriculum. So this is the first year or two. Okay. Uh, so it's just a way to experience part of your core curriculum. It, it, how it grows, we'll see. But as an experiment, it's just in the first uh, year or two. And, uh, and then every few weeks, so the students are in all these individual courses on history, ethics, philosophy, etc. But every few weeks, we bring all the students together into one room uh, to engage in big uh, exercises, a, a, a moral imagination exercise, or a large role-playing simulation uh, in which they're all 
on an imaginary island and each has a different role to play in their sea level rise and they have to negotiate back and forth. So the idea is that trying to create a curriculum that balances disciplinary learning with interdisciplinary interaction. And so we've also tried to make it scalable and sustainable. So we say, we're really saying to the faculty, you teach religion, you just teach religion. You teach history, teach history. And then we've tried to create a scaffolding that then does the integration around, around people's courses. But what we're hoping is that it gives students very early in their education an understanding that there are big existential problems like the environment, artificial intelligence, polarization, inequality, for which no single discipline has the answers and that you need multiple disciplines in order to understand the complexities of something like climate change. So that's one example is building this. And that's just been a footprint in the core. And we hope to build that up now and take that as a model. Um, a second example is, uh, and they're very much like the challenge courses at Tech de Monterey, I believe, um, is that we have a growing number of courses that um, sometimes are a semester, but many last an entire year that are problem-based courses, or we might call them labs or studios. Um, in which students are essentially studying a topic for an entire year and undertaking some kind of design work, sometimes for an authentic client, around that problem. So, for example, uh, our School of Foreign Service um, has what they call Centennial Labs. They're called that because they're just turning 100. So they're called Centennial Labs. One example of a Centennial Lab would be what's called India Innovation Studio. So it's taught by a person who's an expert on India. It's co-taught by a person who happens to be an expert on water. And they are studying the problem of drought and water in India. They actually are doing this in behalf of the government of Maharashtra, which is the largest state in India where Mumbai is, um, and are undertaking the study of the problem of drought, um, sustainability, farmer suicide, um, trying to understand the problem at a level that would help farmers uh, continue to, to be able to thrive. They spend all year studying politics, studying water, studying um, hydrology, um, but they're also studying the techniques for problem solving, for innovation, for design. So all of these are part of the studio, and over the course of the year, they're coming up with possible solutions to very targeted problems within this very large problem of drought. So our belief is that the, the university will, would have eventually dozens of such courses, that students would run into a series of these problem-based courses throughout their career. Um, so th those are two ways that we're trying to address this question by really reimagining the curriculum around um, existential problems. So uh, these ideas are, are very powerful because uh, working um, around problems and not only disciplines um, uh, forces uh, this interdisciplinary uh, work between uh, uh, faculty members and students. I think that uh, students are more um, uh, willing to participate in this uh, kind of experiences than faculty. What, what has been your experience? And I think it really depends on how you create the structure. So yes, I think that faculty, 
are willing to participate in these new structures if they feel as if the impact on their overall career is not um, overly burdensome. So the first example I gave of the core, what we call core pathways, it, it really allows faculty to pretty much teach the course they've always been teaching. They have to adapt it from 15 weeks to seven weeks and divide it in half or something like that. But we're not asking faculty to go off and invent an entirely new course. The idea behind this structure of core pathways was for the most part to let faculty put the same amount of work into their contribution and then for us to figure out what's the small amount of value added that allows their contribution to be leveraged into this larger interdisciplinary structure. I think that's the key if we think about moving to a more interdisciplinary problem-focused curriculum is that faculty have to feel at every step of the way that we are adjusting what we imagine is their workload to be commensurate with the nature of these new structures. So that will take a while. I think that'll take a while. I think that, you know, it isn't that faculty, people often talk about how faculty are unwilling to change. I don't believe that's the case at all. I just think that faculty are like all human beings <laughs> in that they want to make calculations with their effort based on the rewards. So if all the rewards are to say, act this way, and then we're creating mm -hmm. new creative structures mm -hmm. that say, oh, but we'd really like you to act this way, mm -hmm. even though every other policy, structure, incentive, merit you know, increase is all focused on a different measure. So I think that the key is to really invent new structures, workloads, workload, a way we count workload, the way we look at workflow, so that these new educational structures are in, aligned with, if, with how we imagine faculty lives. Why is including um, experiential learning important in the curriculum? I think that we're living in an era in which, first of all, knowledge is expanding at such a rapid pace. The world is changing at such a rapid pace that we have just outgrown, outlived the kind of world that allows people the luxury to just sit and learn and think for many years and then eventually learn how to do something. I just don't think that's the world we live in anymore, <laughs> that we need, we need graduates who can leave our institutions very capable to effect change in the world, very capable to be leaders and change agents in whatever field they go into. And you, if you're going to produce a graduate who can affect change in their context, then they need practice at that, right? We don't, we want someone to write or speak or do quantitative work in their job. Well, then you need to train them for four years to do that competently. If you want someone to be an effective leader in their job, you need to train them to be an effective leader. If you want them to work in conditions of uncertainty, they need practice and guidance and mentoring being in conditions of uncertainty. So whatever we mean by experiential learning, or sometimes I call it, I just think of it as applied learning or integrated applied learning, that has to be part of the curriculum from the very beginning. Because if we want people to leave with high levels of competence, they need practice working in conditions of uncertainty from the very first semester they arrive. 
for instance, in 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 medicine, is it it has as far as I remember remember always been like that. No experience is um, uh, a, a very important part of the curriculum. Um, I, I I don't know why uh, it hasn't been like that in other disciplines. Uh, what was the historical reason of that? My theory of that is that. Um, there's a long bias in the in liberal education in the disciplines that that were the what we might call the pursuit of truth disciplines um that was a very strong bias between the thinking class and the working class mm-hmm. and i actually think um that to some extent the 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 slow acceptance of experiential learning and sometimes the bias against experiential learning is a, even without people realizing it, is a residual of a kind of class condescension to people who work with their hands for a living. Um, and other people have made this argument that um, we have such a strong bias to assume that, that, that the intellectual life is all about the mind and people who work physically have no intellectual life. The bias runs on both sides, whereas in fact a lot of really amazing work has been done about the life of the mind of the people who do manual labor, for example, and craft, and the intelligence of people who work in different kinds of things. Most of that is invisible, and we tend to think that's physical, and intellectual life is mental. And I think we now, so I think that those biases run very deep. you know, I think there's other threats to it. I think like you were saying, it's more work to teach a course that's experientially based. It's a lot easier to stand up and talk to a room full of people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to just say what you want to say, take some questions and leave. That's easier. It's cheaper. <laughs> you can do it year after year. You don't have to respond to <laughs> changing conditions. You don't have to work with partners. You don't have to come up with new problems. Um, so I think there's some bias there in terms of workload, but I actually think the bias is quite deep against experiential applied. Nearly every field, the people who do theory think they're better than the people who do applied versions of that theory. There's just a very deeply held uh, hierarchy or class bias between theory and application. But I, I think that's one of those binaries or biases that we have to get over because I don't think we can educate people for this world without understanding that our business is quite firmly both those things. Okay, we have to be more humble. (laughs) Yeah, humble about our own contribution to that education. And I think that includes, because for example, once you admit that part of what you're doing is about practice, it's not just about theory, it's about practice, then you're also saying that actually some of the people with great authority here are practitioners. And that means that 100% of the authority no longer sits with the faculty member. It no longer sits with the scholars. That part of the authority, the part of the truth of what you're trying to teach in any field Mm -hmm. sits Mm -hmm. with the practitioners. So anytime anybody needs to sort of share their their capital, (laughs) people are sometimes resistant to that. But, I, but again, I think that uh, I, I think understanding that, that who it is that's educating in a university, faculty are of course central, but there are different kinds of faculty that one could make much more use of advanced students. We could be making much more use of our alumni 
enough practitioners that moving to an, a notion of that who is the instructional network that makes education possible, we have to start thinking that as being much more diverse than just the faculty. Faculty are still the pillars. There's something very special between faculty and student, but you cannot teach experientially alone. It is almost impossible to think of teaching as a solo sport and do effective project-based or challenge-based teaching. Challenge-based teaching is almost always needs a team of, of instructors to help students get through. So um, uh, discipline and practice are very important. And I was telling you that in the new 2030 vision of Tech Monterey, human flourishing is very important. So those personal skills, personal development, what about that? So, you know, I teach at a Jesuit institution. The Jesuits have been talking about educating the whole person for over 400 years. So that is very much uh, deeply held in our beliefs that it's about flourishing and formation and the whole person. I think as much as possible, we need to think of flourishing as not something that is somebody else's responsibility, but that the notion of flourishing and well-being needs to be integrated into everything we do. Um, and that includes thinking about the ways that we are stressing students to be competitive with each other as opposed to cooperative, or that we're helping students understand that one needs to take care of oneself personally at every step of the way. Um, in the gesture toward thinking about flourishing, um, we are starting to imagine these uh, what I'll call global problem-based verticals that might help structure students' pathways through the whole curriculum. What I was describing before was, was at the core, but this would be all the way through, all the way into alumnihood and postgraduate. The first one that we have been thinking about piloting, uh, my phrase for it is sustainable lives, meaning that it would be a, a community of inquiry that was focused both on environment and sustainability and well-being and flourishing to ask what could it look like to imagine an education that takes up uh, the ability of a human to, to lead a sustainable life, a flourishing life, and the ways that we think about a sustainable planet. Um, boundaries of personal responsibility, thinking about people who are outside of yourself, having empathy, being able to trade short-term gains for long-term advantage. I mean, in many ways, uh, thinking about complex systems, there are many concepts that actually cut across environmental sustainability and personal flourishing. And so one of the ideas is to actually create a community of inquiry around the university that would ask the question, how can we think about well-being and flourishing together with planetary sustainability? It's sort of like uh, the human at the center, but not like in the Renaissance. It's like in harmony with the environment. Exactly. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, uh, there's a philosopher, uh, theorist named Felix Guattari, um, who wrote a book called The Three Ecologies, in which he argues that what we need at this moment on our planet is to understand how we're all living in these overlapping ecologies environmental ecologies, moral ecologies, um, personal and physical ecologies, uh, etc. And I think that that is really the ultimate reworking of the framework of universities is to create 
an educational experience that lives at the intersection of multiple ecologies. Um, we have been radically siloed. Um, and I think that really imagining what does an education look like at the intersection of multiple ecologies is really the challenge of the next 20 or 30 years of higher education. Mm -hmm. And talking only about 10 years, if you could uh, tell me uh, what will you wish uh, to see in 10 years in higher education, how higher education will be? I wish that it will be um, radically problem-centered and, 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 and radically focused on helping to develop students to be change agents in the world, not just uh, being trained in disciplines. Um, that we can reimagine how the curriculum can serve justice, how that actually students moving through the curriculum is itself focused outward on the world. That's already happening, but only at the fringes. So, so a problem-centered curriculum, a curriculum that does more to serve justice, and that all universities have figured out how to stretch themselves to reach populations that they're not currently reaching. Um, and every institution would have to do that at its own scale. But I think giving up some of our lust for competitiveness and our own market position for a willingness to expand our brands and our educational capital, what um, Heidi Elmendorf, who's a faculty member here, calls educational capital, that universities acquire educational capital by bringing students from communities. Mm -hmm. And we educate those students but we aren't doing really enough to return that educational capital back to the communities where our students came from. And hence mm -hmm. we draw low-income students to Georgetown where those communities are worse off than they were 20 years ago when we started pulling students from them. So, so that would be my third thing. So a problem-centered curriculum, um, a curriculum that serves justice and universities that reimagine ways to return educational capital to the broadest pop possible population. Okay. Otherwise, I don't see how we expand educational attainment and, um, and, and reverse what is currently just the um, increased stratification of the world that education in many ways is perpetuating. Yes, very interesting this concept of educational capital. So um, lower income, uh, populations or communities, let's say they invest their talent in, in, in our universities and then the return of that investment doesn't go back yeah. to the, those communities. What are the ways that you envision that uh, universities can change in order to really return that educational capital to? Yeah. So, and in many ways, it makes them worse because there are certainly examples in the United States, especially in rural areas where the most talented people leave and never go back. So you actually are what is famously known as hollowing out the middle. Um, well, I'll just give you one example of a project that has come out of the Red House, again, entirely led and conceptualized by Professor Heidi Elmendorf, um, who runs a, a unit that's part of the Red House Network, um, launching something called the Pivotal Network, 
which is seeks to network together the pivotal educators in under-resourced high schools from these communities where we draw students. And we know who those educators are because they write letters of recommendation for our students to get them here. But we never give anything back to them, you know, other than accepting their student. So this is an attempt to network all of these educators together, to give them resources to do their job better, to, to give them resources that can help better match their, their current students to the best possible educational um, options, to network those teachers to college professors so there can be an exchange over expectations and academic expectations, et cetera. But it's a way of trying to, to give educational back to the communities through these pivotal educators. So that, that's one example. I think other ways that uh, institutions can do that is by imagining how you could engage your current students to be mentors to students in the high schools of those communities to help them get on to any college, not just even necessarily to mm -hmm. Georgetown. Mm -hmm. But to think about, you know, well, what if we imagine that 10% of our, it doesn't even have to be that high, but let's say 10% of our student time should be somehow giving back to one community or another um, and, 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 and see that as part of the curriculum not part of the co-curriculum, but to say that part of what the curriculum should do is find ways to engage students with communities that are under-resourced in order to, it, and it can be any one of a number of things, but it could be helping really focused on, you know, what are the educational options? How, how do we get students who don't think that they're even college bound to think about college? How do we actually have stu current students who are helping future students sit down and actually fill out the application form, the financial aid form, do translation, look at educational options. So that would be even a, a, a simpler, more pragmatic way of thinking about giving educational capital back. But then there's, you know, using technology to deliver coursework, to imagine ways that you can supplement um, community-based education with um, broader kinds of outcomes that we might deliver. So I, th I think it's a big open question. I think the first and most important thing is for universities to just understand that it's a problem, that mm -hmm. this is a goal, that one of our obligations is, is to give back to communities that we've largely only drawn from. I think actually universities will get very creative if they think of it as a priority. And what's next for the Red House? What are the next projects? So I think building these, trying to imagine what this problem-focused curriculum is, that's, that's one very big challenge. Um, we also have just launched a new program in downtown Washington, D.C. called the Capital Applied Learning Lab, which has the acronym of the CALL. So it has a kind of resonance with the Jesuit sense of calling. Um, but it, it is now a place where students can move Uh, from the campus downtown for a semester, and that is explicitly where they're engaged in applied learning. So they're either doing uh, an internship and they have credits wrapped around it, or it's a, a whole set of disciplines that are working together in these problem-based studios, but working on problems that are particular to Washington, D.C., or drawing from the resources of Washington, D.C. 
So building out the call as a major multidisciplinary hub for where the university meets the world, that's, that's our next big project too. Yeah, great. Thank you very much, Randy. Where can we learn more uh, about the... Uh, you can go to the, the, the uh, Red House webpage, which is futures, F-U-T-U-R-E-S, futures.georgetown.edu, or you can send us an email at redhouse at georgetown.edu. Thank you very much, and congratulations for your work. Thank you. Thanks for talking with me. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash edutrendspodcast. Thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer, Miguel Mejia. Edutrends producer, Esteban Venegas and Christian Guijosa. Post-production, Max Perez. Stay tuned for the next episode of Edutrends and visit Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.